Hello and welcome to the Talking It Over podcast series with support in mind Scotland. Or, Nicole, as the cool kids are calling it, the Smaths Braff. The Smaths Braff, yes. Well, what we're seeking to do with this short podcast series is respond to several events that we've attended as part of the Scottish Mental Health Arts Festival this year. I'm Ian Mitchell. And I'm Nicole Bell. And in this episode, Looking On, an audience with mental health, we'll aim to look at the stage as a platform for representing mental illness. For the first part of our podcast today, we spoke to Andrew Eaton-Lewis, who is the Arts Lead for the Mental Health Foundation. And as a quick disclaimer, we should mention, given that the the rare opportunity to take in some October sunshine arose, we spoke to Andrew in his garden, and you will feel like you're there when you hear this clip. It doesn't need any further explanation than that. On to theatre specifically, we'd like to ask you a couple of questions about the arts in general. So you've worked in the arts for quite a wee while now, and do you think there's a difference in the way people engage with and create art in the context of mental health, or do you think it's the same regardless of whether the art itself is issues focused or not? Oh gosh, that's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, because mental health is just a subject to be talked about like any other subject, I think. Um, I mean... There is, I suppose, the fact that art about mental health is quite often rooted in someone's personal experience, because if somebody wants to make something about mental health, it's probably because they've gone through mental ill health themselves, or somebody they know has, a family member or, or friend. So there's generally, in my experience at least, there's a, there's a, a personal, quite personal motivation for doing it. But then that's probably true of a lot of other things artists make work about too. Um, one thing I would say is that there seems to be a lot more theatre that is explicitly about mental health now than there was a few years ago. Um, when this festival was first set up 11 years ago, um, the aim was to use the arts in general um, as, as, as a kind of conversation starter, as, as, a, as a way to talk about mental health and break down stigma. Um, so in some ways... I, f- I feel like the festival's a little bit ahead of the game because in in last three or four years, it feels like there's been a very conspicuous increase in in, in theatre shows that are about mental health, um, particularly at the Edinburgh Fringe. Um, there was a show about four years ago um, called Every Brilliant Thing uh, about depression, which was, um, uh, and then there was a, a one called Fake It Till You Make It um, by Bryony Kimmings. Um, Two years ago, three years ago, but that was—I mean—that was a show about um, somebody uh, caring for a partner with quite chronic long-term depression, mm-hmm. um, which was a huge hit. I mean, it, it sold out its entire fringe run within three or four days, I think, and they ended up having to do an extra show at um, a much bigger venue with a capacity of four hundred. Okay. Um, and there was a huge amount of media coverage that year, not just about around that show, but around lots of other shows uh, and um, a, that were also on the subject of mental health. And since then, in, in, the, in the last couple of years at the Edinburgh Fringe, there have been, it seems, so many more. And to the point where this year we set up a, a new award called the Mental Health Fringe Award for, to recognise um, what seems to be becoming almost a genre. At, uh, at the French, but yeah, I'm I'm slightly getting away from your question here. Um, so the question was, what's the difference between a, a, sh- a, a show about mental health and a show that is not necessarily <laughs> mental health? Um, 
Yeah, I, th I think I'd just go back to my original answer, which is um, these are quite often very personal shows. Mm -hmm. um, and, and most, I mean, we find that most of the shows in general um, that we put on at the Mental Health Festival are very much rooted in people's personal experiences and um, it's about people giving a voice to things that they've been through or, or, or people they love who have been through so that, that's that's an important thing for us and that's certainly true of the theatre shows in this festival So uh, building on what you were saying there about the increase in shows about mental illness at the Fringe hmm. do you think if, it, if things keep growing the way they are there's a danger the message could get diluted? Well no, I don't think so, because I don't think it necessarily have to, has to have a message anyway. I mean, it, it's not necessarily about having a message. It's just about being able to talk about this stuff. And, and um, I think what was particularly interesting about The Fringe this year is that the, the variety of shows around mental health was much wider. That, that it's, not, it's not a novelty anymore to be making a show about anxiety and depression. So um, you, if you're going to do that... Um, you want to do something quite individual, quite different, and, and so there are lots of different kind of takes on it. Um, like the shortlist for our Mental Health Fringe Award um, this year consisted of a show that was about uh, a childhood spent playing computer games um, called Super Awesome World, which is very much about using computer games as kind of a metaphor for isolation, but also the kind of, kind of this kind of task-based approach to... Um, to to to, uh, to therapy, I suppose. So there was a show about computer games. There was there was a musical, kind of all singing, all dancing, jazz hands musical about depression. Um, there was a, a beautiful show where somebody was kind of, um, using lots of visual aids and and and, and music to talk about um, uh, his relationship with his mother, who was bipolar. Um, yeah, there's, there's, yeah, that was what really stood out for me, that the range of ways that people are, are now taking on this subject. Huge variation. Yeah. Well, now um, we'd like to move on to, to theatre more specifically. Mm -hmm. So what I'd like to ask is theatre as an art has long been known for exploring themes which other art forms and sometimes society at large weren't always ready to discuss. And I wondered whether you thought that theatre is still taking the lead on challenging the taboos around mental illness in a way that other arts maybe aren't. Or whether you think that's changed now? I'm not sure I would agree with the premise, though. I mean, theatre can be very groundbreaking, breaking, but so can music, and so can literature, and so can art. And, and I think the arts in general are very good at tackling taboos. I mean, theatre is very good at it, um, but it just—I suppose—it just does it differently. Um, Theatre can be a really powerful medium for um, talking about difficult things and, and, and tackling taboos. Um, I would like to think that the shows in the theatre shows in this year's festival are, are certainly taking on taboos. I mean, one particularly powerful show at this year's festival was One Mississippi, which has had a very strong reaction, um, in which uh, four men from uh, four male characters from uh, different uh, cultural, ethnic, religious backgrounds um, across Scotland um, talk about uh, their mental health, and and, but, and it's it's based on interviews with um, a group of men, all of whom had attempted suicide and survived, and so it's it's about uh, the show is about the childhood experiences, the early formative experiences that 
kind of shape their personalities and how they got to that point of crisis. And um, and it was a really powerful show because it's rare enough to hear men talking very openly about their mental health in um, in that way. But but to hear such a range of voices, to hear a gay Muslim man. You know, I, I'd not heard, I'd not seen a theatre show in which a, a, a young gay Muslim man um, talked about reaching that point of crisis and 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 um, you know the the pressures um, of, of, of the, to do with his, his family and his religion and and how isolated he felt. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was also a, a, a man growing up in, in sectarian Belfast. Uh, and kind of battling with all those, you know, the, the kind of the violence under the surface of uh, 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 where he was living, and um, it was really powerful to see men sharing their stories that way. And I was told by the playwright that there was a group of sixteen-year-old um, boys, a, a big group of, of boys, who came to see this show one day, and, and that's really important, you know, that to, um, for. Um, for those voices to be heard and, and, and for it to reach people that way. I mean, I, I suppose my hesitation with theatre was because it is very powerful. On the other hand, in, in some ways, it is limited in its audience. I mean, in, um, I, th- I think it, I think theatre has it works in a quite specific sort of way. Mm. Um, I think other things that can be really powerful is... It's celebrities, actually. You know, mm. I mean, there's been this big rise of the past few years in in, in famous people talking about their mental health problems. Mm. Um, in terms of masculinity, I mean, there's there's um, Robert Webb, the comedian, yeah, did a book this yeah. year, um, which is, I think, I think, books like that are really important. And then Matt Haig um, did a book um, uh, called Reasons to Stay Alive, Alive. a couple of years ago. Loads of people have said that that book. <laughs> Saved their life, pretty much. So they have a kind of wider, wider reach, perhaps, in theatre. But yeah, but theatre plays a really important role in that. Um, so the theme for this year's festival is thank you. <laughs> so the theme for this year's festival is reclaim. Yes. Uh, did this have any bearing on you programming uh, plays in like uh, Living with the Lights On or Hysteria? Uh, well, the way the theme for every year's festival comes about is that it's voted on. I mean, um, Shmaf is a is a community based festival at heart, and um, a lot of decisions are made very democratically. Um, so we decide the theme by getting together a big group of people from all over the country, who um, all program their own um, sections of the festival from from region to region, and we all talk about what theme would be good. Um, and it needs to be a theme that is evocative, and and gets people's attention but it also needs to be broad enough to um, to be interpreted in lots of different ways by lots of pe- different people doing lots of different things all over the country um, so Reclaim was the one that was voted on this year um, I had already been talking to um, uh, to ATC about bringing the, the actors touring company about bringing Living With The Lights mm-hmm. On up here so that was but that I think I probably could have fitted that to other themes, but it certainly did fit with these with this theme in particular because it's about Mark reclaiming his life, really, and uh, which is the case with a lot of work around mental health because a lot of it is about recovery. It's about going through a crisis and, and, and coming back from that. But but yeah, Mark did you know his his career was pretty much destroyed for for quite a while by by what happened to him, and he has been reclaiming that. 
and uh, but um, Reclaim has um, fitted quite well as uh, quite luckily for me with uh, with some other theatre projects it fits well with Hysteria because um, if you're talking about women's mental health um, I mean Reclaim is I, I, you know, I think you think of things like the, the reclaim the streets mm-hmm. marches. So, it, and it's about in in the case of hysteria, it's partly about reclaiming language. It's about um, yeah, reclaiming words that are used to insult or belittle you. So that so hysteria is obviously this supposed medical condition that that um, makes women irrational, <laughs> <laughs> um, which has been used for centuries to you know to silence women really and um, to to if if women were being a bit awkward and difficult then you could just lock them away and so so by julia calling her show hysteria that's about reclaiming that word and mocking it and and uh having a bit of fun with that idea um uh, which you'll see um when, when you see the show there are lots of there's a very funny song which opens the show which is called hysteria which has lots of um, amusing words that hysteria rhymes with. <laughs> ah, okay. Well, we're seeing that tonight, so yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah. And um, so, just as we finish up, I wanted to ask one final question, and that's as arts lead for the Mental Health Foundation. If you could put a call out to creatives for upcoming festivals, is there something in particular you'd like to see come up in the future, or see more of Ooh. that you've seen? Wow. Okay. <laughs> One thing I would say is that next year's festival, which will take place in May um, 2018, um, the theme is um, beginnings. So if you would like to make uh, um, something on that theme, if you're particularly interested in that theme, then yes, we'd be very interested in hearing from you. Um, We chose that theme partly because it's the year of young people um, uh, next year. So there's going to be a lot of youth-based work, and I'm very happy to say that we've got some funding um, to do that specific kind of work so that we'll have a youth panel um, and yeah there's lots of work around around young people made by young people um, so if you have a piece of work that would fit in that festival um, then yeah definitely get in touch but beyond that you know we're, we're, I'm, we're I'm interested year round I mean I mean I'm, I'm in a very I'm in a very lucky position really in that I've I get two days a week um, on this job much of which I just spend talking to artists and I, I, I hope I can be a useful resource to artists of various kinds just to kind of have a chat I mean I spend an awful lot of my job just sitting in cafes chatting away over to people who, over a cup of tea <laughs> um, to people who want to make um, a new theatre piece um, or um, or are musicians or, or you know um, whatever and um I'm, I, I can be um, uh, hopefully useful in, in, in helping develop ideas and, and suggesting where they might go. What we'll do for the listeners is include your contact details in the, yeah. in the podcast so that Great. they can get in touch with any ideas for the, for the upcoming festival, Absolutely. which is obviously coming a wee bit sooner than, yeah. yes, we've, than yeah, the normal well, cycle, hasn't it? So yeah, well, we've really had exciting. to programme two at once. Um, <laughs> How's has that been, been for you? It's been challenging. Challenging, <laughs> but always worthwhile. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, the festival next year, we are going to scale down a little bit. I mean, I... I I'm really, really pleased with this year's festival program, but um, if anything, it feels like we've maybe taken on a little too much and spread ourselves a little bit thinly at times. And it has been, uh, yeah, I've, I've always we've not been able to devote 
as much time as we would like to individual particular individual shows I mean you know we've, I think we've done pretty well but I think I, for I, audience members the range has been great and really impressive so but for example I I really really wanted to go to um, the Flint and Pitch event in Paisley on Wednesday because I like everybody on the bill but I'd already committed myself to going to another event, which was also great, and, and I was really pleased to be there at Dundee Literary Festival, which is yeah. called Beyond the Binary, um, which is all about transgender stories from across the world. And it was a great event, but I would also have liked to go to it. <laughs> and that seems to be happening to me quite a bit this month. So presumably it is also happening with audience members that, you know, you have to choose one thing over another. Everybody wants a time turner. <laughs> yeah, and, and there's, you can only ask so much of people's time. You know, people aren't going to go out every single night for a month um, so I think it would do no harm to scale the festival back a little bit and uh, focus a little bit more on, on what we can do year round which we're doing to an extent already um, but yeah I'm, I'm not that makes me slightly less worried about less first, about next year's festival because I don't f- we already have kind of a head start with the with the uh, year of young people funding. There's there's a lot of interesting activity that's going to come out of that, and we also have the winner of our um, mental health fringe award from the fringe, which I'm hoping will come to um, Gla- we'll into Glasgow in May next year. So we'll, we'll be able to really focus on giving that a lot of attention. Well, we'll but, be yeah. looking forward yeah. to that too. There'll be no time in coming round. But yes, it will be it would be one thing we don't have just now. Um, is uh, a really great touring theatre show on a mental health theme. So, there you go. So, <laughs> touring the- theatre companies out there. Your number is up. <laughs> well, thank you very much for thank your you. time today. Really a massive thank you to Andrew for giving up some of his precious time in what is an incredibly busy period during the festival. For the next section of this podcast, we were joined by Mark Lockyer writer and performer of Living With The Lights On, an incredible and compelling 75-minute solo show where Mark takes us to the heart of his personal and professional journey from the helplessness of very publicly struggling with serious mental illness to reclaiming his life as well as his passion for the stage. Can you tell us about your motivations in telling your story on the stage? Yeah. um, It's very simple, really. I mean, I realised about oh, about 17 years ago 18 years ago after the, the some of the events that I talk about in the play you know I'd had this extraordinary experience and this story had kind of landed on me nothing particularly that interesting had happened in my life really but for the first time in my life I was really I'd gone on this extraordinary journey because of my mental illness and my diagnosis and I didn't know how I was going just to pretend to sweep it under the carpet and I thought well if I don't try and sweep it under the carpet and tell people about it some of the people that I've met some of the amazing characters that I've come across I mean I could hardly believe it myself but I thought people might find it rather interesting if not extraordinary and you know I was bumbling along doing my life and then this thing happened to me and um, I began to think yeah this is a great story don't forget I'm I'm a performer I'm an actor you know I like a good tale and I thought I'm going to start telling it and then if people want to judge me 
they can judge me because I got there first as opposed to people hiding behind their hands. You have to understand that, you know, nearly 20 years ago, the whole uh, awareness of mental health was nowhere near like it is now. And, uh, I mean, that's why it sat in a drawer for 15 years, because eventually I gave up banging my head against a brick wall because people didn't see that it's an entertainment. They didn't see that it's a... It's an evening out that's fun, but it's informative at the same time. And dark, yes, and brutal, and honest, yes, all those things. But what do people want from the theatre? Um, so, um, but, yeah, so I, I, I set about, all those years ago, just that's the motivation. I thought, I've got to tell people about it. So do you think that's been... Do you think telling people about this has been a cathartic experience for you? And have there been any sort of unforeseen results from, from telling your story and from sharing your experience? I'm very careful to use the word cathartic, therapeutic, uh, karmic, because that's not my job. Okay. I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm not a counsellor, I'm not a drama psychotherapist. I'm just an actor that likes a laugh that happened to have this thing, extraordinary thing happened to. And I don't think of it in those terms. What I never bargained for was that the story really grips everybody and that it touches people in many, many different ways. It isn't just about the issues of uh, the ingredients, as I, we were talking before, about you know mental health. It's about all sorts of different things, and about the way that we, or I, perceive my mere existence now. You know what I my my relationship with the dark side of things, and um, I think what I'm feeling is what a lot of people feel, yeah. who don't even have issues with their emotional health. So, um, What advice would you give to someone who's perhaps contending with mental illness themselves who feels it may hold them back in, say, a theatrical career? Or I think things are very different. I think things have got a lot better, but I have to be, you know, it pains me to say this, you know, and I have to be honest and cynical. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the awareness of mental health is fantastic you know it's in the air it's in the climate you know I'm on a third UK tour about these issues but for me there's awareness and stigma awareness has become fantastic I think stigma is still as powerful as it was 20 years ago it's just that we have got better at hiding it And I feel very passionate that, and I have to say it, that there are people within my business who are very sympathetic and very empathetic towards the whole notion. You know, you've got pastoral care now at the Royal Shakespeare Company. You've got counsellors at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art. It was unheard of all those years ago for the well-being of the actors and students' health alike. But I still think there's a lot of stigma because... We are in a business about money and people need to feel sure that, you know, there's not going to be a, 
a, a, a sticking point in a company where somebody could fall ill or you know and what I'm saying is is you know be a problem that could be a problem to a company financially mm -hmm. I know a director that wouldn't want to work with me again and that's fine that's fine I wouldn't particularly want to work with him <laughs> but um, the, the fact is is that um, he wouldn't want to work with me because he wouldn't trust me once you break people's trust you know it's difficult but that's in my profession. In other, in other workplaces, I think it's very different. If you worked in a bank, if you worked in a major company, it, I, I can't comment, but um, it might well be easier. But there is a, there, what is important to the positive is there is a far greater understanding and awareness of mental health, and it's getting better, and that is better than nothing. And that's where stigma begins to be chipped away. I think what you say about stigma is really interesting because I think for us what we see sometimes in our work is as much as for some mental illnesses people are much more willing to, to kind of open up about it and to speak about it, there are others where the stigma around it is in some ways worse. Well look at schizophrenia, there was an issue this week in the news, there was a guy that's been I think jailed or about to be sentenced because he stabbed his hostel mate a year ago in Bristol with a kitchen knife. So yet again, schizophrenia is uh, is in the news, um, you know, and that paints the picture that schizophrenics are lunatics who run round and kill people and push people off uh, train platforms. Mm -hmm. It is an infinitesimal percentage. The majority of schizophrenics can get well and live normal lives and, um, you know, live very happily. It's about people's misconceptions. Yeah, and lots of schizophrenics are the most terribly shy people, introverted and quiet. You know, they wouldn't say boot of a goose. But when we see that in the media, oh my God, you know. So already there is this... And whose fault was that? That was not the fault of that individual. Of course, it was ultimately he committed the act. But the guy should never have been let, let set free from the secure unit. It was yeah, a clinical... Yeah, it was the mental health tribunal. The doctors didn't want him to go. It was the mental health tribunal, the people who were supporting him legally, that got him out. But they, did, they didn't want him to go. So there was clearly... Um, but the point is that it just leaves a mark that, you know, schizophrenia is... I mean, I don't know too much about schizophrenia. I mean, only the facts that I've shared, but it's very inaccurate. When we're talking about the kind of the infrastructure around how we support or fail to support people who are who are mentally ill, would you like to tell us a wee bit about your own experience? I know in your play you talk a wee bit about, and I don't want to give any spoilers away because this is a play that people have to see. But you talk a wee bit about the kind of the infrastructure you come up against across mm. the way and across your journey. Is there anything around that that you'd you'd like to share? You think would be helpful to discuss? I think. All the clinical systems, from the GP's office to a hospital wing of a prison, there will always be failings. Mm -hmm. And I think, again, it's about understanding. The trouble with somewhere like a prison is, of course, that behind closed doors, it can do what it wants. Yes, of course, it has very rigid and stringent guidelines. Yeah, but I'm telling you that when when I found myself in that place, it was like a Bosch painting. It was like hell on 
earth and people behaved in the way that they did. You know, it, it, it is a holding pen for what some would call human trash. Um, they are very sad places and I think there are people within these, these organisations, these institutions, clinical, who are extraordinarily helpful and break their back to help people and then there are a few who don't. But you have to understand is that when you are sick mm -hmm. in these places, from the doctor's surgery to the hospital wing of a prison, you are in a, 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 a state of fear. Your perception is completely altered. Mm. So it's pretty bad looking at it on the page, but then when you're experiencing it. I think it's about trying to comply with the help that's being given, you know. Um, and even when you go to a GP, you know, it's very difficult for some to even take their medication. But medication is very important. They don't give it out lightly, not mm. psychiatric medication. And if you if you are given it, take it. It's going to help you. I say that. When I was given it, I never took it. Took it for two days, chucked it in the bin. It's very difficult. It's very difficult because m mental distress, stress makes you do strange things so it's a tough one yeah and I don't have all the answers but I think in those institutions there you know with more awareness it'll get better I'm, st I'm struck by that so my um, my dad was in psychiatric care for a kind of extended period of time when I was quite young mm. and so I remember my experience as a kind of seven or eight year old coming into one of these spaces and I just, I wonder now whether things have improved particularly much, because this was in the kind of early 2000s. Well, I think that's the case. I think yeah, things I have improved. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm sure they've improved. And I think what was in place in, in the early noughties was, was that if it was at the serious end mm -hmm. of intervention, people took that very, very seriously. Where we have a problem today is that people accessing uh, psychotherapeutic care, counselling care, um, at, at, the, at the rock face, as it were. You know, the person that wakes up one day and admits, I think I need some help. And then they go to their GP, which is their first port of call, but the, there isn't money and services enough to fast-track those people through. Men's waiting lists. And yeah. I, I recall a time, so I studied psychology as well, and so sometimes friends would come to me because they knew I was sensitive I suppose and understood kind of the issues and, and wasn't going to judge anybody and one of the things I saw I supported a friend who was kind of looking to, to go in and get support in hospital and honestly we were left for hours without mm, yeah. any understanding of what's happening where we're going where I mean if you go, go if you go to the I mean I presume it's the same in Scotland if I went to the emergency and A&E department at the nearest hospital here mm -hmm. and I went to the desk and I said I want to kill myself mm -hmm. I'll be told to sit and wait until they find a mm -hmm. duty psychiatrist and I could be sitting there waiting for four, five, six, seven hours. Unless I actually was going to attempt to do it in the thing, mm -hmm. you know, something serious. But, so, the system is, is either 
is is definitely underfunded. Mm-hmm. It's definitely oversubscribed to the need for Absolutely. services. Um, it's just at breaking point, you know. And it is about money. It needs funding. You know, what are we going to do? We're going to give the mental, you know, are we going to give our, our, our mental health departments uh, more money? Or is it going to go to uh, heart surgery or what else, some other department? Because it's not sexy. Do you think that there's a role in terms of, these are messages that need to be said. And I think quite often it kind of falls to the arts to, to give these messages when the media narrative sometimes shaped in one way. And but it depends how you do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. I can see where you're leading to. I th- absolutely agree with you. I think my show talks very eloquently and concisely about lots of different areas of this region. But it's like I said at the beginning, you cannot wrap it up in a wrapping paper of mental health. The general public don't want to know. It's too much. You have to be clever. And I don't mean sly or lying. I mean, you just have to think. You need to lead. Somebody that doesn't understand something needs to be led by the hand and coaxed and encouraged and trusted. There's a, there's a, it's a peculiar kind of dichotomy and, and, and a strange kind of... Um, um, I can't think of the word, forgive me. Um, contradiction. That here we are in, a, in, a, in a, the Scottish Mental Health Arts Festival a play that is clearly deserves its place here for all sorts of different reasons. But it strikes me that the, the general masses, particularly in Edinburgh, are not coming. Mm. And I wonder if that's not to do with Edinburgh. It's just to do that here we are promoting not just my show, but all the other shows and the wonderful work that, um, that the foundation has, has, has created, uh, is not... Is, is not is, is actually because it's mental health mm. and still their stigma is actually alienating people. If people in the know, of course, God, that's a fantastic thing. Let's get there. Let's tell our friends. And, it, and, it, and it's very important and so should it continue. But the wider reaches, it's proved to me, in terms of arts, we still have a very, very long way to go. Do you see what I'm saying? Completely. And I mean, I think what we know from our experience with the Edinburgh Fringe, there was a, a total proliferation of mental health shows in the fringe this year far more than there have been in programming in the past and I don't know if that means does that mean that's a kind of a dilution as a force for I agree with you I agree with you I think that you know there is a a glut of of you know it we were kind of killing it to death I I wrote a, a a little thing this morning about you know, have we not? Are we not wearing too many identity bracelets for a good cause? Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? For a good charity, maybe we've done it to death. My question is, as as an artist, mm-hmm. yeah, you can have fifty shows on the fringe about mental health. How many of them are any good? Yeah, yeah. No, very true. Good point. Very true. And I think how many? And then you see what's the danger of that is somebody goes along. To somebody goes along and says, "Why would I want to? Why would I want to work all afternoon?" in M&S on a Thursday night and then go and see a show about so-called mental health issues. I'd rather, I'd rather go to the cinema or, or stay in. Do you see what I mean? It, it kind of undercuts it. It's 
It's whether you're whether you're looking at art as an exploration or as an escapist thing, and maybe your experience of it's different depending on what you're looking for. Because I think, for me, watching your show, it was incredible. It's incredible. I was basically crying by the end. It was very, very touching. But because the issues explosion it hammered so close to home for me, it was really raw as an experience. It was brilliant. But for some people, they maybe don't engage with art. I think. What I'm saying is, we must never, in the arts, we must never, ever lose entertainment. Humour is a very powerful weapon. If you can make people laugh about the most darkest things, which is what I do in this, you know, how can you laugh at your own attempted whatever? I'm not going to give any spoilers away. But the point is, humour is very powerful. And if I said to you, guys, there's this brilliant entertainment over here, or there's this brilliant play about schizophrenia you know we should never lose the lightness of touch with these things teaching and sharing stories and sharing stories about some sometimes things which are really really bleak you don't have you have one of the most important things I do in this play you can take an audience by the hand and you can you know strip them naked of you know and take them there but you've got to, you've got to give them their clothes back, and you've got to get them home safely. And then they feel, wow, I've had a journey. Mm-hmm. What happens is with this particular kind of material, you know, mental health issue plays, is it's I'm going to beat you over the head, and there's no humour in it at all, and it's the and actually, it's not like that in real life. Entertainment and me. That's why I said to you, I am not a therapist. I'm not a, a, a counsellor or a psychiatrist. I'm an actor, and I like a laugh. <laughs> and a lot of what happened to me was hilarious. <laughs> There's so much stuff I couldn't get in. But my behaviour was just tragic and funny all at the same time, because it was, and I didn't care, you know, and... I just think we should never lose sight. We should never get mawkish or too worthy. It's about entertainment and fun and a laugh. And there's a way in that, if you're clever, mm-hmm. that you can really make a point without shooting people Having in the back. The yeah. Yeah, yeah. So what do you think's next in line for you after this? Was there more, more of this to come? I've written another play. Oh, wow, okay. I've written another play, which is in the same kind of ilk in terms of presentation of what you saw, you know, the physical manifestation of it. But the material is, is completely different. It's not about mental health. It's about... Um, it's about a man that goes to another country, okay. uh, Spain in this instance, and finds the secret of happiness. And on his way to find that, he meets many weird and wonderful characters. Yeah. So, it, in a nutshell, that's what it's called. It's called Keep On Walking Federico. Keep On Walking Federico. And when should we look forward to hearing about that? Well, if it's any good, <laughs> uh, I'm going off um, early New Year to back to Spain to finish complete writing I mean it's written it's, the material's written I just need to adapt it up for the stage 
Um, and we've got a showing at the end of February. And they're, they're, if it's any good, you never know. You may hear something of it, it towards the autumn of next year. Please come up to Scotland again. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. <laughs> sure. We'd like to thank Mark for his time last week. And if you'd like to catch Living with the Lights On, you can see it at the Warwick Arts Centre between the 1st and the 4th of November, the Crucible Studio in Sheffield between the 6th and 7th of November, and at the Stephen Joseph Theatre in Scarborough. For the final portion of this podcast, we were joined by our colleague Laura Gulliver to discuss Hysteria, a cabaret which was in equal parts hilarious and incredibly hard-hitting. We should mention that this section of the podcast does deal with themes of sexism and sexual violence before we begin. The play we went to see was called Hysteria. How apt do we think this name was to the play and what the play explores? Well, first of all, you know, to come at it from a a not very drilled-down sort of perspective, it was at times hysterically funny. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, it had some very hard-hitting you know, topics and stuff that you guys will definitely be touching on. But personally, yeah, it was very well-crafted and, you know, enjoyable. Mm-hmm. So, You could imagine um, if we could have transplanted that play back to the time when women were being um, placed into institutions um, suffering from hysteria, you could imagine that one of the things that they perhaps would have put a woman into an institution for was the kind of frantic, energised dance in Lycra that we did see. <laughs> um, it kind of, it, it was very apt in that way. But obviously, as well, there's a wider link to hysteria um, as a name for a mental health condition as it was then. And uh, the wider notion, um, which we'll go into in more detail, about women's emotions or thoughts or feelings and um, how they are perceived and observed by wider society. And how the label of hysteria was almost used to to silence those experiences, mm-hmm. um, to silence women's stories. And fundamentally what that represents in terms of the way we're using hysteria there also tells us a little bit about how society fails to, to value the stories or narratives of people with lived experience of mental illness as well. Mm-hmm. Because if we're able to sweep... Um, women's stories under the carpet using the blanket of hysteria then Mm -hmm. that means that this notion of of this illness Mm -hmm. as it was termed wasn't treated with the respect or legitimacy it deserves either Mm -hmm. and unfortunately we sort of still see that with mental illness today another interesting thing I think the the play did um, was in terms of the kind of the arc that we see within the play and this was a good point that you made, Ian, wasn't it, about about what the kind of story yeah. that we see and how that's um, shown in the in the form that the play takes. Yeah, the peaks and troughs that we experienced during hysteria, to me, almost it was like symbolic of the advances that womankind have had, you know, in the last hundred years or what have you, but coupled with setbacks and caveats. So you know, it, the play took us up, and it was almost like, okay, you get the vote now. But then we were back down, you know, okay, you've got to vote, but sexual assault is still going to be prevalent mm-hmm. to this day. And then right back up, okay, you can you can have the jobs that men have, but you're not going to be looked upon equally, you're still going to be ogled or what have you. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's kind of something I read into it, but I think everything in the, in the play was very deliberate. 
Oh, absolutely. Um, it was crafted. Yeah, it was definitely very... crafted from, from start to finish. What we should mention, I think, is that in terms of these this kind of double double arc that we see within the play, the play was sort of punctuated with two main points of, of levity, if you like. And mm-hmm. the first one was a kind of rhyming song, all the words that rhyme with hysteria, and it was very <laughs> funny, and it yeah. built us all up. And there were trumpets, and yeah, it's all very comical. Yeah. Um, but then you're, you're quickly having been brought up that high, as you say, and it, it mirrors the, the kind of historical point there. You're brought crashing back down to reality in terms of the kind of the stories that it's that it's going into, and then it brings you back up again with this lycra number that you've spoken about, and then again we're back. We're reminded of the kind of horrors and the trauma mm-hmm. that that people experience, and I think it was very cleverly done um, in terms of it almost brought you along for the experience that the people in the play that are being discussed have experienced too. So mm-hmm. you're brought, you're, everything seems to be fine, everything's going grand, and then you get toned down by something that's traumatic and unexpected. And then kind of on that journey sometimes you see when you're trying to come to terms with, recover from something or try to get better at coping with something, you think things are kind of going on an upwards trajectory, but actually it's not a linear experience that can bring you, something can can trigger you or can set a sort of a journey going on in your mind that, that brings you kind of back down again and, and that's sort of what we or in my in my mind sort of what we saw there as well mm-hmm. so everything was very crafted by her so and um this also takes us to the to the matter of um agency within the play mm-hmm. because she's very carefully crafted this story and this journey that we're being taken on but there was very much a question around how much agency the people that whose experiences being described had. Mm-hmm. Um, so they've obviously offered their stories up in an anonymised way. Mm. Um, but that brings in how much do we believe a story that we're told second hand? Mm. Um, we're not inclined to do that. And that's one of the ongoing features with um, people who have lived experience of mental health issues and also... Um, people who've encountered any form of sexual harassment or, or sexual assault, mm-hmm. um, that they don't feel that they will be believed, so they don't share their stories, but then by virtue of not sharing their stories personally, they aren't believed, so it's that kind of negative cycle. I think as well what the what the play is trying to do <clears throat> in terms of in terms of agency and, and bringing that back is is not just the kind of the agency. Or, or lack thereof that we see of the people that are being or the people in their stories that are being depicted in the play but also um, the way the agency of the playwright is used to strip away agency from those mm-hmm. um, those in the audience mm-hmm. I think there was a really interesting interplay there mm-hmm. I don't know if you want to kind of talk through <coughs> what happened when we were when we were there yes so um, there was one particular um, area where this came to the fore where as an audience, our own agency of potentially what we thought was um, correct behaviour was really stripped away. And that was when there was a speech <clears throat> being quoted by one of the actors that actually took place in Parliament with an MP, where she was discussing the, the so termed rape clause. Mm-hmm. And she was very much saying that this was misogyny enshrined in law that women's rights and feelings about their own um, experiences were very much being taken away from them and um, made to be played out in a very public arena and that this was completely awful. And as an audience, we were collectively um, chaperoned along 
to moo over the top of this woman's speech. Um, and we all went along with it, knowing very well that actually silencing that voice was a very negative thing to do, even within that space. Mm-hmm. So even if we don't think about the impacts of, of that voice being silenced within Parliament, within that room, it was quite a negative um, thing for us to be silencing that voice. And yet we still did it because it was kind of a <clears throat> expectation on us to do so, um, that there was a feeling that... Um, she was just sort of shouting and it wasn't really meaning anything and uh, we were encouraged to move over the top of her, which we did, mm-hmm. um, without actually thinking about what that meant. And if you ever tune in to watch the Parliament depicted on TV at whatever hour of the morning or night, these mm-hmm. are the kind of things we see where sometimes we see women stand mm-hmm. up to discuss these kind of issues and actually they They're are silenced. over and silenced. Over, um, mm-hmm. and, and sadly in a place like Parliament, which is not particularly representative and is still mm-hmm. largely dominated by, by male voices. And we were reminded of that, mm-hmm. in that in that theatrical space. But this is something that happens in real life. And not even just in a, in a documented environment like the Parliament. Mm-hmm. Female voices being silenced and female agency being taken away happens in, in small mm-hmm. ways small all the time. And and that served to remind us of that too. I think there's one test. Well, there's one testimony within the play that actually really stuck with me. As as you've mentioned that Nicole, mm-hmm. um, one woman's voice saying, "Actually, you know, um, our laws are getting better at preventing violence um, against women, but what they're not getting very good at doing is um, preventing the threat of violence, which is actually what causes a lot of the silence. It's the it's the threat. It's the pervasive feeling that." speaking out um, about any kind of injustices is a thing that's going to create um, danger for the women who, who, who speak out. Do we want to, to move on to, I think, something which is quite, quite linked to agency, mm. and that is um, the issue of empowerment? Because this is another central mm. kind of theme within the play mm. in terms of how we empower or disempower women's voices but not even just women's voices I think this the point um the point of empowerment and the way that the play tries to to educate and walk us through that issue actually stands for empowerment on any oppressed voice um in terms of what it's trying to do um because what it says I think or what it reminds us of is that things aren't always given due credence from an individual person on the street sharing their story. Sometimes it takes something bigger than that to catalyse a movement or a response. And I think certainly in in recent days and weeks, this is something that we've seen play out socially too. I don't know what you two think. It's definitely... It's definitely a strong um, theme of, of the play was that kind of a level of empowerment and whose voice is actually valuable. Mm-hmm. And that changes um, given society's focus on whoever is, is speaking at the time. Um, so again, another key example from the, the, the testimony section was this um, feeling that um, women, particularly women of colour and particularly LGBT people, um, have been fighting these battles for a long time and that the movement only really garnered this kind of um, force, if you like, mm-hmm. um, once white cis women joined the, the fight. I think another 
another place where we see this echoed actually mm-hmm. is in um, the almost hijacking of the pride movement as well, where um, <coughs> largely the people responsible for kind of the, the trailblazers, if you like, of, of the pride mm-hmm. um, movement and, and the riots, the kind of Stonewall riots, um, were um, transgender people of colour. Mm-hmm. And this has been this has been whitewashed also in terms of how we how that story is reported in history. And it's something that we see again and again where the voices of the oppressed only garner traction when they get sponsorship from something society tells us is more quote-unquote acceptable, mm-hmm. which is just so problematic. I don't even know where you, you kind of start. You start with that. Yeah, it's quite sad in some ways uh, um, for you know worthy causes and concerns to actually gain traction. It does take a high-profile voice to to come out and, and start start a ball rolling. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've seen it very recently in, in Hollywood with the Harvey Weinstein uh, mess. Mm-hmm. You know, it took it took people like Angelina Jolie to, to come forward. Um, and we see it in mental health as well. And, you know, it's something people have been talking about for a while, but now when, you know, Prince William and, and Harry bring it up, suddenly it's it's a bigger deal mm-hmm. which is great because these conversations you know need to be happening and if it takes these people who and I'm not discrediting them because they've been through stuff definitely mm-hmm. um, if it takes them to get a ball rolling that's a good thing but it's just it's a bit frustrating in some ways that that's what it takes it's not the voices of the voices of ordinary people I think what we're reminded of when um, we're sort of discussing the voices of ordinary people are the settings in which these voices can be heard. And I think this is another thing that the, the, the theatrical form of the play was reminding us about. And that, that was kind of the notion of the safe space and what a safe space means, whether a safe space works, and the question about whether a safe space actually exists. And this is poised by the poised by the, the piece the whole way through because kind of by virtue of the, the setting you were sort of in the round, yeah. which one sort of imagines if you're participating in a safe space is sort of that circle of seats experience where okay, people are sharing. Therapy session, yeah. Yeah, and that's the, even the setup of the mm-hmm. theatre was reminding you of that. And we saw that um actually embodied on stage. We had a small kind of round circle with mm-hmm. the three um the three actors who were taking part. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what you thought about kind of the notion of safe, safe spaces and how that was explored. It's certainly, it's there and it's salient the whole way through by the way that the theatre piece puts it together. But it's also raising some important questions, I think. It is, because um, by virtue of the, the, the testimony element um, and the, the recording of people's experiences and um, the main actor brought back time and again this kind of answer machine where you could leave your truth and in it being a place where um primarily women but not not just women could leave um their messages about the type of experiences they'd had um so in that way it was kind of a safe space um to explore these issues but by the by the very definition of inviting people to see a theater play um people 
are going to come along to it who've potentially never had any of these experiences mm-hmm. so that's both men and women and there was definitely a sense within the audience I, I could feel that some people felt very uncomfortable um, and um, there was a lot of defensive postures in the audience um, now I wouldn't like to guess at what was what was what were the thoughts going on uh, for those people mm-hmm. uh, by the way people are sitting and and for the first time you can see some people feeling genuinely um, uncomfortable so by definition by creating a safe space for some people you are creating an unsafe space or an uncomfortable space mm-hmm. for someone else mm-hmm. um, and that kind of came out time and time again in, in different parts of the play I think the notion of the safe space and what the theatrical piece was doing also asks another question um, or is telling in some way about what society at large is like Mm -hmm. because by virtue of the fact that we need to construct a safe space for certain groups and largely these are safe spaces for groups who have been oppressed in some way Mm -hmm. whether that's people that we see at our own services who are accessing kind of mental health support groups or whether that's survivors of sexual assault or, or other kind of horrible, horrible things, um, it reminds us that society isn't a safe space because by virtue that you need to demark these out, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. it's, it's not there. Mm-hmm. Um, but what was, what was strange is I didn't feel like, I didn't feel like there are plays you can go and see and the plays are in some way a call to arms. Mm. They're, you leave with a definite sense of what action it wants you to take when you're finished with it. Mm-hmm. And I think what this play was saying was that these topics are so big that we don't know what the answers are yet. Mm-hmm. Because you didn't leave with a sense of knowing what you should do and what action you should take. Mm-hmm. And if we, again, if we bring this back to the safe spaces thing, um, what these spaces are meant to do is be in some way constructive for the people that take part in them. Mm-hmm. Whether that's just by giving them a sense of community <coughs> or whether that's if you've got some sort of lead session, somebody helping to put support and infrastructure in place. Mm-hmm. But the play and the full safe space that it constructed yeah. didn't give you that no. because you didn't leave <coughs> with a sense of what to do you left with questions mm-hmm. and the whole play was driven by that wasn't it it was dri- driven by questions and we've covered off some of those key questions today the questions around agency and female agency the agency of the female playwright and how that was used to both tell a story when agency is removed mm-hmm. but also to strip agency away from those people in the audience we've spoken a wee bit about empowerment and how empowerment was or wasn't given and how that was explored within the within the play as well mm-hmm. and then we've spoken a wee bit about the safe spaces side of things which I think actually ties up these as well mm-hmm. um, I'm not sure really how we end this today because the play didn't leave me with a sense of knowing how this story ends this is a story that's still very much ongoing it's a narrative that's still ongoing it's questions that are still ongoing and I think it's it's an open discussion, isn't it, about what we do. But fundamentally, with things in life that need to be discussed, open discussion is what we need about this and about so many other issues that have been taboo or that are swept under a carpet or um, that mean that certain voices are...
And if you're interested in the subject of sexism and mental health, Hysteria's playwright Julia Todavan and Dr Iris Elliott are hosting a drop-in workshop at Perth Concert Hall this Saturday, October 28th, and that's part of the Women of the World Festival. If you've been affected by any of the topics discussed in this episode, you'll be able to find relevant links to support attached to this podcast. All that remains to say is a huge thank you to everyone for listening, and we'll catch you in episode two.